Please open uh, your Bible to Genesis chapter 20. If you're using one of the church black Bibles, it's page 13. We're continuing on this morning in our series called Promise, looking at the, the life of Abraham and the, the promises that God has made to him, he's made to us, and the response of faith and obedience that we uh, are called to as a consequence of those promises. And as you turn there, I think it's safe to say that as Christians, we are all prone to fail at times. We are all prone to fail, to make mistakes in our walk of faith. But there's failure and then there is repeated failure. Failure is one thing, but often there is repeated failure in our lives. Where we make the same mistake more than once. And then we begin to wonder, don't we? Will God still forgive me? Is God really changing me? Have I forfeited his favour in my life and the promises that he's made to me? And can he still use me? You come to Abraham in chapter 20 this morning. He's received God's gracious promises. They have been confirmed through the covenant in chapters 15 to 17. He's responded with great faith. But here in chapter 20, he fails again. Big time. Has he forfeited God's promises and favour in his life? Can he still be used by God? And as Christians, we ask there, is there hope and a future for flawed saints who feel more than once, like you and me? What about as a church? Is there a hope and a future for a church that is flawed and that feels? And maybe you don't know Jesus this morning, or you're figuring that out, what it looks like to follow him. Does the failure of those who say they have faith in God invalidate the promises of the gospel? And how does God respond to those who have failed more than once? It's a question that these, this passage poses for you. And what we're going to see this morning together is this. Even in our failures, our promise-keeping God remains faithful. The sermon title this morning is Promise Keeper. And what we see is that God is a promise keeper even in our failures. He remains faithful. So I'm going to read the first um, 18 verses of chapter 20. If you look down and follow along with me. And let's hear the word of the living God together. Genesis chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, 
know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So first thing we see together this morning from this passage is because God is a promise keeper, even in our failures, chapter 20. Two big things we're going to see here in chapter 20. Our repeated failures and God's rich grace. Firstly, our repeated failure. So we, last week we looked at the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw the horrible legacy that Lot had left in, in his family, yet it wasn't without hope. Now we swing back to Abraham uh, and Sarah. And we have here essentially a repeat. If you're familiar with um, the life of Abraham, we have a repeat of what happened in Genesis 12 when Abraham went down to Egypt and told Sarah to lie before Pharaoh. Verse 13, he confirms this for us. In fact, it seems to have been his policy. Hey, Sarah, everywhere we go, tell them you're my sister so they, they won't kill me. Listen, don't, don't, don't think about yourself. Never mind yourself. Make sure that you tell them you're my sister so that I stay safe. Once again, Abraham here is choosing to live by fear rather than by faith. Once again, he fails to leave his wife and his family. Once again, he puts his wife in deep danger. And once again, Sarah is taken by a pagan king. In Genesis 12, it was Pharaoh. Here it's Abimelech. The promises of God here appear to be in jeopardy. But, verse 3, but God. God steps in and protects Sarah. He preserves the promised line and he restores Abraham. And verse 14 tells us that not only does God get him out of this hole that he's got himself into again, but Abraham is richly blessed also by Abimelech. And in verse 17, Abraham is still used by God to bless the nations as he prays for Abimelech. So too for you and me, our failures are often repeated failures. We fall back into the same sin patterns. We give in to the same temptations. We repeat the same mistakes. 
Have you ever repeated a spiritual failure? Have you ever repeated a massive spiritual failure? Like Abraham? How does Abraham's repeated failure both warn us and give us hope? Well, it warns us uh, in this way. It warns us that it's not just the lots of the world who fail. It's not just the lots of the world that fail. Last week we saw that the contrast between Abraham and Lot. Abraham was more righteous than Lot, but it's not just the lots of the world, the world that fail. Consider how Abraham was that righteous example. The one who obeyed, the one who acted righteously, the one whom God remembered. Now look at him. Even men and women of great faith are prone to fall. First Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So often when we feel like we're standing tall, that temptation and sin pose their, their greatest risk. Abraham's just shown, shown great faith in the previous two chapters with his obedience. He's on the verge of this great fulfillment of his son finally being born. And it's in that moment, off the back of faith and obedience, and in light of great fulfillment, that he falls. We've seen it before. He got Sarah to lie in Egypt after he showed great faith in going to Canaan. He gets Hagar pregnant straight after God confirms a covenant. In rugby, uh, Six Nations is just over, but in rugby there's two moments where things can easily go wrong. When the team are about to score a try, called white line fever, when they're about to see something great happen, when they're about to score a try, and then the second time is straight off the kickoff. Straight after the team have seen great uh, celebration, they've experienced uh, celebration and excitement. Those are the two times when it's most easy to slip up and fall and make mistakes. So too it is often in our walk with the Lord. It reminds us, as we thought about a number of weeks ago, that from Ephesians 6, that we are always at war. That we can never become complacent. That the walk of faith always has to be an alert walk. So we must be aware at all times, maybe even more so when God seems to be bearing great fruit in our lives or in the lives of those around us. When we see personal growth, when we see church growth, when we see the Lord at work in great ways. We should celebrate those things, but we shouldn't become complacent. We should be realistic about the ongoing reality of sin and temptation in our lives. We're warned here that we should fight all temptation and sin, but particularly we should be aware of and alert to those sins and temptations where we have already fallen. That's often where we fall again. Old habits die hard, as they say. Yet as Christians, we have a spirit. We have a spirit to help us obey. And 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where it warned us not to think that anyone stands, lest he fall, goes on to say in verse 13, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So though we may be prone to fall into previous sinful patterns, it's not inevitable. There is a way out. Another way we are warned here is through the consequences 
Consequences are something we've seen throughout these chapters. We should consider the consequences of what will happen if we choose to live by fear rather than by faith. Lot's life and his decisions are a great example of that, a tragic example. If only we would consider the consequences of our sin rather than just as fleeting pleasures. If only Abraham had considered the danger he was placing his wife in, the danger he was placing the promise in by putting her in danger, given that she was the one through whom the promised son would come. Consider the consequences. I recently heard a story of a pastor who failed morally. Um, one of the elders of his church retold the pain of the meeting that was held where the congregation was informed. It was a four-hour meeting, and he said of that meeting, he said, I often tell people that if you ever want to find a deterrent for moral failure, if you could somehow bottle up the cries and the agony that we heard in that four-hour meeting and present it to other folks and say, this is what you will hear if you fail your congregation. I think that in and of itself would function as a great deterrent. And that applies across the board to all of life. Consider the pain, consider the tears, consider the agony, consider the consequences if we choose to repeat our failures. For Abraham, his failure here stemmed from fear and manifested itself in his marriage. For you may could be fear that leads to hiding or compromising our faith. Might be anger that leads to outbursts or abuse or conflicts or maybe even murder. Could be lust that leads to cheating and betrayal. Could be greed which leads to jealousy and hatred and selfishness. It could be an addiction that leads to devastation, destruction and maybe even death. Abraham's repeated failure warns you and me this morning, but it also gives us great hope. We also see great hope here, hope based on the grace of God. God steps in to this repeated failure. He protects Sarah, he preserves the promised line, he blesses Abraham and he continues to use him. God makes sure in verse 6 that Abimelech doesn't lay a finger on Sarah. It's God who did that. God still uses Abraham to pray for Abimelech in verse 7 and 17. God still chooses to bless Abraham and Sarah through Abimelech by giving them possessions and land. How can this be? For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of grace. Abraham was far from perfect. He had great failures, but he also is a man of great faith. Faith in God, faith that we've already seen and that we'll see ultimately displayed on Good Friday in chapter 22. Abraham fails, yes, but his faith is more defining of him than his failures. His faith is more defining of him than his failures, and even his faith is a gift from God by Grace, so too for you and me. So too you and I, even when we fail, if our faith is in Christ, we can be sure of God's grace, God's preservation, God's promises, God's blessing, and we can be assured that repeated failure doesn't land us in the rubbish heap. God can still use us 
God will still bless us and God will still use us to bless the nations just like Abraham. The commentator Bruce Waltke says this of Abraham. God does not cast aside his flawed saint but restores him in order to work his elective purposes through him. All by the grace of God. So as Christians, we shouldn't pretend that we don't feel. We shouldn't pretend that we don't feel. And when we do, we should repent before the Lord and before those we have wronged. And we shouldn't repent like Abraham. Did you notice in verse 11 to 13, tries to get himself out of technicalities. Uh, technically, she's my sister. Don't repent like that. Own your sin. Own my sin. Yet in Christ we are guaranteed grace. Grace guarantees our failures don't determine our futures. It's true of Abraham. It can be true for you and me if our faith is in Christ. Because of grace, failures don't need to determine our futures. And it should humble us and cause us, like the Apostle Paul, to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. No, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. By the grace of God, we are what we are. As Christians, both local, national, global, again, we should take heed lest we fall. We should own our failures. Yet we take great confidence knowing that failures both in our church, in our national churches, in the global church, those failures don't stop Jesus building his global church. That doesn't mean that Jesus will never remove the lampstand in the language of Revelation. That doesn't mean he will never cause a church to, uh, to he will never uh, quench a church or remove it in any given local church. It just means that the promise on a global scale will never fail. His promises will never fail. No amount of repeated failure or reputational damage can stop the building of Christ's church. And for those among us who maybe don't know the Lord or they're seeking to explore faith in Him, Christians mess up. And they should own up to that. I should, we should own up to that. And God does not take those failures lightly. But he does give grace. And those failures don't invalidate the good news and the truth of the gospel. And the goodness of his church. What about Abimelech here? What can we learn from him? Well, from Abimelech we can see that God didn't just show his grace to his own people, to uh, Abraham. He shows his grace to the nations. To those who don't know him. How does he show that? Well, he reveals himself. You see that in verse 3. He reveals himself in a dream to Abimelech. For us, he reveals himself to all of creation, through creation and through conscience. God's moral law is written on our hearts. Abraham displays that by recognizing that it's wrong to commit adultery. He knows he's in trouble when he finds out that Sarah is married to Abraham. He shows that the seventh commandment is written on his heart. God reveals himself, God restrains evil, like, like how he restrained Abimelech. God is gracious in our world to restrain evil. This world and the people in it are not as bad as they could be. It's a gracious thing. 
God is gracious in that he acts justly. Verse 6, God acknowledges Abimelech's innocence in this matter. We saw his justice displayed in the previous chapters also. Verse 7, God is gracious in that he gives time to re repent. He gives time for Abimelech to rectify the situation. He tells him to return Sarah and to go to Abraham for prayer. He calls him to act by returning Sarah, not just acting in words. That's what repentance is. It's both words and deeds. And God in his grace provides a person to intercede for Abimelech so that he might, verse 7, live and not die. God graciously provides an intercessor for Abimelech, that was Abraham, for you and I as Abraham's ultimate offspring, Christ. God in his grace gives us Jesus to intercede for us through the cross so that anyone who would turn from their sin and turn to him in faith might live and not die. Isn't God gracious? And Abimelech models then a God-fearing response to this grace. Verse 8, he immediately responds. Okay? He doesn't hang about. He rises early in the morning. He and those around him feared God. In fact, Abimelech in this chapter is a greater example of fear and righteousness than Abraham himself. He fears God in verse 8, contrary to Abraham's accusation in verse 11. Abraham says, no one here fears God. Abimelech proved him wrong. And Abimelech, though in many ways innocent, owns the fact that his actions have still landed him in a guilty place. He owns it. Compare that again with how Abraham owned his sin. And then in verses 14 to 16, Abimelech generously gives to Abraham. He returns Sarah. He offers him land in his kingdom and does everything he can to ensure Sarah's innocence and integrity are upheld. What's the result for Abimelech? Verse 17, Abraham prays for him and God heals the infertility of his house. Abimelech is more righteous than Abraham. The pagan king in this instance demonstrates more fear of God than the one who has received God's promise. Yet Abimelech still needed the intercession of Abraham to be blessed. What's that mean for you? I mean, what does all this mean for you and me? Abimelech teaches you and I that the whole world is not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. We can be realistic about the state of our town, of our nation, without making pessimistic and sweeping judgments like Abraham in verse 11. That there is no fear of God at all in this place. It reminds us that the Lord is at work to cause people to fear him and turn to him in repentance. And that should cause us to fearlessly and optimistically proclaim the gospel and be faithful witnesses with the expectation that the nations will come to Christ and enter into the blessings of his kingdom. We should expect that at times, frustratingly, tragically, that the conduct of Christians and the church can sometimes be put to shame by the conduct of the world. Yet it's not the Christian's conduct that matters most. It is God's standards. So for those who don't know Jesus, the imperfect conduct of Christians doesn't excuse you from God's call to repentance and faith in Christ. 
hear that often. You've probably heard that as well. All oh, the hypocrisy of Christians, they've turned me off Jesus. I'll never go to the church. I lament my own hypocrisy. We should lament the church's hypocrisy. That doesn't change the fact that God's commands and calls to repentance still stand. And that the witness and intercession of Christians, like Abraham, albeit imperfect, is still needed and to be heeded by the world. The chapter ends with Abraham serving to open the wombs of Abimelech's wife and household. The question Abraham and Sarah must be asking there, right? Why hasn't he done that for us? We're still waiting. Abraham just prayed and God opens the wombs of Abimelech's house. Why hasn't he done that for us? The answer lies not in God's ability to do that, but in his timing. And what we see next is God keeping his promise in his time to provide a son. That's the second thing we see together. Because God is a promise keeper, even in our failures, he will remain faithful. If you look down at chapter 21, first seven verses, I'm just going to read those. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, that Sarah would nurse children. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Verse 1 is short but extremely significant. As he had said, as he had promised, God keeps his promises. God is a promise keeper. And underline verse 2, when does he keep his promises? At the time of which God has spoken to him. Loved ones, the Lord fulfills his promises in his way and in his time. Time spent waiting for God to fulfill his promises is time spent by God refining our faith and graciously giving the world an opportunity to repent. He keeps his promises, and his promises come by grace through faith. We see that again in Hebrews 11, which we've so often gone to in this series. By faith, Sarah received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who he keeps his promises. His promises come by grace through faith. His promises call us to respond in obedience. Notice Abraham's obedience here. He calls his son Isaac as he was commanded. He circumcises Isaac as he was commanded. And his promises also bring joy. The doubtful laughter of the previous chapters 
has now turned to delightful laughter. God's promises bring joy. God's promises turn sorrow and waiting to laughter and joy. And we can't help but see here in this supernatural birth, supernatural can never happen by any natural means, supernatural birth, that the, the, we can, can't help but see the supernatural birth of Jesus, Abraham's ultimate offspring, foreshadowed here. In God's time, the promise to Abraham was fully and finally fulfilled through the supernatural birth of Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, in whom every spiritual blessing is to be found. Our faith is in Christ. We are forgiven and we're guaranteed a future of eternal life and endless joy with God. Yet until Jesus returns, we still await the final phase of those promises to kick in, to be fulfilled. What are those promises? Well, they're the ones that we plainly see in Scripture. God's presence through His Spirit, eternal life, resurrection bodies, new creation, the building of His church, physical provision to do His will in our lives, forgiveness, the return of Christ, the gathering of people from every nation, the authority and presence of Christ as we go to the nations. Those are His promises. We must be careful not to expect or demand God to give us what He has not promised. Material wealth, physical wealth, health, maybe even a spouse, our dream job, our dream home, children. Doing this will crush our spirits and even change the gospel into a counterfeit. So we must be careful to read our Bibles in such a way that understands how God's promises develop over time, over redemptive history, through the coming of Jesus. Let's consider here the, the promise of children and the reality of barrenness that Sarah and many others in the Bible experience. It's been a huge theme in these chapters. Again, like a number of weeks ago, we want to acknowledge the, the deep pain that flows from hearts that long to have children but can't. And as a church, we want to care for one another well in that regard and strive to truly embody what it means to be family as a church. But we can't claim the promise made to Abraham and Sarah of physical offspring for ourselves. That promise is partially fulfilled in Isaac and finally fulfilled in Jesus. The physical coming of Jesus therefore changes things. The commandment to be physically fruitful and multiply still applies from Genesis 9, though it's painful because of the fall. Yet that call to be fruitful and multiply it is primarily being fulfilled not physically through creation, but spiritually through the Great Commission. It's primarily being fulfilled not through the Creation Commission physically, but spiritually through the Great Commission. God's eternal family, the church, is not created through baby making, but through disciple making. That's a family we all get to be part of and enjoy. That's the family that Jesus himself found his ultimate identity in in Mark 3. A family where we all get to express and enjoy our desires for motherhood and fatherhood and brotherhood and sisterhood, even grandparenthood. This is why the, the barren person and the single person of Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 56 have reason to rejoice. Isaiah 54 is quoted in Galatians 4 regarding Sarah. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. God's promises mean that the pain of Sarah's barrenness, the pain of our barrenness, does not have to end in sorrow and pain, but in an eternal, joyful, and fruitful family. Loved ones, God always has and always will write the single and the childless into his story of redemption through Jesus. God has kept his promises and he will continue to keep them. With respect to two major ways, with respect to offspring and with respect to the land. That's what we really see here in the last chunk of chapter 21. He's already provided offspring. Then in verses 8 to 21, we're going to see him preserve the offspring. Let's read those verses together. Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 and 21. So speaking of Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be in heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So again, with the birth of Isaac, we see this theme of jealousy and conflict arise again between Hagar and now the grown-up Ishmael. So running three themes throughout Genesis. Conflict between the promised seed and those who are not. We saw it with Cain and Abel. We see it later in Genesis with Jacob and Esau. This new baby, the promised line here, is essentially under threat. Galatians 4.29 sheds some more light on that. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, persecuted him, that is Isaac, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So what initially seems like a harsh and cruel request from Sarah, and there may be an element of truth in that, is actually confirmed by God himself as necessary and just in order to preserve the promised line and ensure God's promises will come to fulfillment. 
also highlights a number of things. That salvation comes about by God's sovereign grace and promises which are to be embraced by faith, represented by Isaac, as opposed to our sinful nature and efforts, represented by Ishmael. It reminds us that God's people will always be in conflict by those who are not children of the promise by faith. Conflict is part of what it means to be a Christian and be part of the church. Yet in the midst of persecution and conflict with those outside of the promise, we too must show the compassion and the grace that God shows Ishmael and Hagar here to those who would persecute us. Do you see what God does for him and Hagar? He gives them water. He remains present with them. He ensures that Ishmael becomes the nation that God has promised he would become. He shows him compassion and grace here. Matthew 5 tells us, you shall love your neighbor and hate your, uh, you've heard that it, said, it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He shows grace to all of mankind. God remains faithful to his promises and continues to ensure that even in conflict and persecution, they will be kept even as he shows compassion and grace to the persecutor. God keeps his promises with respect to the offspring, and then in the last section, with respect to the lamb. Abraham encounters Abimelech again. In the final part of chapter 21, Abraham strikes up this covenant of peace with Abimelech, enabling Abraham to have a stake in the land. Remember, he's a sojourner, he's living in tents, now he finally begins to have a stake in the land that God has promised. And it seems like a small stake, a well, and one tree. Yet it gives hope for the future that one day the whole land will be given to him. The well and the tree picture life and blessing. So too for you and I, we are sojourners here on the earth. And in this age of can often feel like our stake in the future is small. It can seem like our own personal future seems far off and unlikely. It can seem like the church's future is small and unlikely. Yet we have a God who keeps his promises. He gives us eternal life and promises us his eternal presence as our everlasting God, as Abraham identifies him in verse 33. So loved ones, we have reason to be hopeful. To be hopeful and to remain steadfast in our faith as we call upon the Lord and await the fulfillment of his future promises. We get to remain hopeful as we worship him and call upon his name together just like Abraham at the end of chapter 21. Knowing, knowing that either personally or as a church, that even in our failures, our promise-keeping God will remain faithful, ultimately because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, let's put our faith in him, and with his help and strength, let's continue to trust and obey. Let me pray for us. Father, we
we come before you with our failures and we repent openly. We pray that you would forgive us for our sin, that you would create clean hearts within us, and that you would help us to look to Christ afresh and clear this morning. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that are available in him. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in light of that faith. That you would help us to not fall into sin and temptation, but to walk in obedience. We thank you, Father, that your promises and the redemption of this world and of our lives and the building of your church don't ultimately depend on our faithfulness, but on yours. And so we worship you humbly because of that. And pray that in your grace and mercy, you would still use us that you would still give us the joy and the privilege of seeing those around us, our friends, our family, our town and our nation, enter into the eternal blessing of the kingdom of God through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.